because I think that it is an incredibly valid form of art criticism to stand in front of a piece of art and say, I like this one. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. I first knew Russ Ramsey as a bitter rival in an American Idol fantasy league. We have since made up. Russ is a pastor in the Nashville area, a masterful storyteller, and my go-to resource for all art-related questions. His love of art and story come together in his new book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. It's an art history book, but more importantly, it's a book about the beauty that comes out of stories of human brokenness. Beauty matters. Nobody makes that case better than Russ Ramsey. Russ Ramsey, I'm so excited that you're on the Habit Podcast. I've been waiting for this book for a long time. Uh, Rembrandt is in the wind. Man, uh, it is good to be with you. Yeah, we've been talking about these the things that are in this book, you and I, for, for uh, yeah, it's been years. I'm trying to think what the, the first of these. So th- this book tells, the, it's a long stories really about nine mm-hmm. painters yep is it is it is it fair to say nine works of art or is it just well would you say it, nine it, it's uh no it, it's it's nine long form stories about artists or particular works of art or particular groups of artists oh, and the work right, that yeah. they made together so yeah, so some of them really do feature primarily on a particular work. Like there's a chapter on Michelangelo's David that really is just kind of laser focused, and one on uh, the only painting Rembrandt ever or Van Gogh ever sold while he was alive. But then there's another one that's kind of about the birth of the um, birth of Impressionism and the community uh, around oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so they they and, yeah, and then a couple of them are really kind of more autobiographical. Or, biographical about yeah. <laughs> about particular <laughs> artists like like Edward Hopper or Henry Tanner uh-huh. or Lilius Trotter um yeah. so but but each chapter is a is a kind of a standalone um story yeah uh, so the the first the first of these essays i i guess I, it's i've i've read i've read most of them and i've heard you give talks on most of them um mm-hmm. but the first one i heard was actually the title essay Rembrandt is in the wind yeah. Uh, and it's such a it's a fascinating story about you know about the the Rembrandt being stolen from the was the Gardner Museum is that what it's yeah the, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston Boston um, yeah in, in 1990 so it's been and and none of those paintings 13 works were stolen worth 500 million dollars it's the single largest property theft in American history um, and the uh, they 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 were taken one night and nobody has heard or seen them since. Yeah. Uh, like Netflix did a special on it. Uh, that I you saw can that watch. Um, I think it's called, this is a robbery. Uh-huh. Um, and then there was also a big podcast that was all about it. And uh, they were um, kind of delightfully dissatisfying because, because, <laughs> because it's a whodunit with no answer. Right. Yeah. So, um, but my chapter focuses more like on the, um, on the, on the, the story of the storm on the sea of Galilee that the painting represents and kind of the theological conundrum of we live in a world where works like this with the subject matter they're about, you know, Jesus disciples pleading with him. Don't you care that we're perishing here? Um, was, was 
cut out of its frame with a razor blade and rolled up and driven off into the night. Um, I mean, it's just, a, it's a compelling story that it, that's kind of like, yeah, that's, that, that is a version, that heist was a kind of a version of, of the kind of storms we find ourselves in, in a, in a world that's kind of profoundly broken where that kind of thing happens. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, that was the first one that I wrote and for, for this, for the book, I actually just wrote it kind of as an essay to, to give as a talk and, and, um, but then it got me just spinning on there's, uh-huh. you know, there's got to be just so many stories to explore and uncover. And it was a blast to just yeah. get into things. You know, it's, it's, you've written about so many different things throughout your career, you know, in the, in the last 10 or however many years we've known each other. And it's been really fun for me to see you settling into, like when I first knew you, the idea that you'd be the guy, the, the art history guy. That was not, I mean, I, well, I, I knew, I did know that you were interested in art, but the, the thought that you would settle into this thing, mm-hmm. that now this is such an important part of what you do, including on social media, you do these, these Art Wednesday things that, are, that are, I think are just so fantastic. Um, that's, I guess that's not a question. Uh, what, I mean... Yeah. You got anything to say about, about this? Idea? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a cohesive. So I've written three books that are, that are narrative retellings of the story of scripture mm-hmm. and another that's a memoir. And I think what all five books then have in common, including this one is uh, their storytelling, mm-hmm. um, that there's a fascination with the slow unpacking of, of a story and the way that, that they, uh, shed so much light on, on the human experience, you know? And so it's funny, like as I was doing a lot of the work for the Rembrandt is in the wind, it occurred to me, I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm a pastor full time. And so I write a sermon every week and preach it. And I realized I'm kind of just doing exegesis here, Hmm. um, but I'm exegeting a painting. Um, It's the same. It's a very similar process. Like I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm researching and reading and taking notes and trying to connect dots and trying to understand. And, and uh, I, I found that, that for the Rembrandt is in the wind book, it was a lot of the same kind of muscle that I was using to write the narrative retellings of scripture mm. where I'm like, okay, here's the, here's the, here's the data. Um, here are things people wrote about it. And uh, how can I, how can I weave these things together? So that's what they have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, is kind of the storyteller's voice. But I, I think, yeah, I think since I was in, you know, since I was a kid and in school, I, 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 art was was always one of the most compelling uh, things to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I was fascinated by it. Uh, and And with the, you know, the advent of the technology that's at our fingertips now, it's so much easier yeah. to to research and to dig deep uh, quickly without having to, you know, find special libraries that, you know, house the books that are related to all these things. Yeah. Um, so, so talk to me about why, uh, I mean, th- th- this is a, an art history book for lay people. Yes. Is that fair to say? It is. Well, so why do yeah, lay people yeah. need art history? Well, I think, I think that art like if I, you know, if I just were to say to somebody, hey, I've written a book about art, um, most people uh, who are un, 
who are not super into art are going to have a pr- pretty similar initial response. And that is um, perhaps a feeling that it's not a book for them. Yeah. Um, because it's a subject matter that can feel intimidating or like I have to have an art history degree in order to be able to understand it. Um, and it's also the experience that so many of us have had where somebody has shown us a piece of work or we've stood in front of a piece of art and just not had any, just, we just don't get it. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, there's certain artists out there that hang in, you know, the, the Louvre and the Met and, and uh, people stand in front of them and say, what is this? Like, you know, it's just a bunch of color fields. Like what, mm-hmm. why is this in a world-class museum? And so I think there are a lot of obstacles to um, to people engaging with art because they we, we feel like we, we have to engage as an art critic. Uh, yeah. And so for me, I, I was wanting to write something in a way that would say, you don't have to be an art historian or an art critic to um, really engage with art. And it's funny because I think that it is an incredibly valid form of art criticism to stand in front of a piece of art and say, I like this one. <laughs> Just as much as it a very, it's a very valid form of art criticism to stand in front of a work and say, I don't like this one, or I don't get this one. I think it's, I think, you know, as Westerners, we, we, we kind of feel like we're supposed to be able to walk up to, to something and absorb it and get it immediately. And translate that into abstract nouns. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah, about exactly. human suffering and this is about whatever. Exactly. So, so I had an art teacher in high school who told us young art students, uh, she said, if you want to be an appreciator of art for the rest of your life, here's how you do it. Find an artist that you resonate with and then just pay attention to them for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, get a book or two about them, get a coffee table book. When you're at a museum and their work is there, go look at it and read the plaque on the wall. Uh, and over time, you will not only develop a deeper familiarity and understanding of that particular artist, which is really a lot of the key to taking in art is understanding some of the artist himself or herself, right? Is, uh, is that she said, but not only will you start to develop a, a kind of an insight and, an, and maybe even an expertise on that particular artist, but that artist will introduce you to their friends and they'll yeah. introduce you to their mentors, you know, yeah. so you'll, you'll walk over to the Van Gogh and you'll pass Gauguin and Pizarro and Monet and Manet. And mm-hmm. maybe one of those artists will catch your eye, Mary Cassatt, you know, and you'll, and you'll stop and you'll say, Oh, what's this? You yeah. know, I like this. Yeah. And before you know it, you're, you're, you're walking into, um, you know, you came to see Van Gogh, but but it was like a little party, and you got to hang out with a bunch of people, and then and then they'll tell you, yeah, Rembrandt was kind of our our big inspiration. So you'll wander over to him, and you'll see Rembrandt, and he'll introduce you to Caravaggio and Vermeer, and uh, and you'll learn about you know the chiaroscuro light and dark extremes of the, that makes their work so like dramatic and yeah and before you just do this over the course of your life and you start to just develop a general familiarity with art itself um and you don't have to go to college for it like you know <laughs> and, and and you also don't have to feel that incredible 
burden we might feel when we walk into a museum that we've got to take the whole thing in in a day. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, so, so part of what I was wanting to do with the book is write something for people to, as an invitation to, to enjoy art and to be intrigued by art and to want to know how to dig deeper into the stories of artists' lives and works that exist. Because to me, I think it's 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 very intriguing to me if there's a particular work of art that has been regarded for 500 years as one of the greatest things ever produced by a human being. I think that fact alone makes me want to say, then I'm, I want to understand more about Michelangelo's David. Yeah. Um, if yeah. this is, if this is the way it is regarded and it has been for half, you know, for, for half a millennia, um, yeah. there's, there's, there's something worth my time there um, yeah. to, to seek to understand. So was Van Gogh your artist that you started with? He was. Yeah, yeah. He was my, he was my gateway. He, he was the one and I had a, you know, and she, he was my art teacher's favorite. She, she loved Van Gogh and Georgia O'Keeffe and Frank Lloyd Wright. Those were her three. Um, and we were in Indiana where we were two hours away from Chicago. And so we'd go to the Chicago Art Institute. Um, and in Chicago, there's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, you know, yeah. and so we would take this field trip. I must have done it three times as an art student where we'd go there and, you know, we'd see O'Keefe and we'd see Van Gogh and we'd see some uh, Edward Hopper and we'd see um, Surratt's Dots, we called it, um, the big <laughs> the Saturday afternoon in the park or whatever it's called. And we go to a Frank Lloyd Wright house and uh-huh. uh, those became sort of pillars for me of like, okay, these are, these are points on the map mm-hmm. um, for me artistically uh, of understanding. Yeah. But Van Gogh was my, he was the key. He was the yeah. way in. Yeah. So I want to hear you talk about a minute ago, you said you don't have to be and you know, approach art as an art critic mm-hmm. um, in that to stand before a painting and say, I like this one, or even I don't like this one is an okay, yeah, you know, form of art criticism. I think maybe you, I think that's the way you put it. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Like, a, what is what does it mean when you say approaching art as an art critic? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, like the art critic, the the caricature of the art critic that people have in their minds. You know, yeah. that they understand all of the history and they're just kind of this fluent fountain of all of these French names and words and movements. And, you know, yeah. um, they call the Paris salon, the salon and, you know, things like that, <laughs> you know, where there's kind of this, this, this sort of insider, you know, inner ring kind of, yeah. kind of thing. And I, you know, and I, I love being around art historians because they're, they're usually never the cartoon, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in our minds, it's yeah. the um, Anton Ego in, in Ratatouille, you know, is, is kind of the art critic. He's the food critic, you know, there. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think we, we can feel like because we don't know much about art history or art criticism, we're not qualified mm-hmm. to really um, engage with art in any kind of a valid way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll we'll self-deprecate and we'll say, oh, I, you know, I mean, I saw paintings, but I had no idea what I was looking at. I yeah. think, well, no, you you do. Yeah. I had a funny experience with a, a coworker a number of years ago who loved Mark Rothko, loves Mark Rothko. And Mark Rothko is, if you're not familiar with him, it's a lot of color fields, um, rectangles. Um, and I'd seen some Rothko online 
and read some things. You know, there were some articles that were coming out about him at a particular time. And, and uh, I was a person who said, I just don't get it. I, I don't get that. And she said, okay. And I, we were talking about it in the context of, I was getting ready to go, go to New York city and go to the Met. Uh-huh. Um, and there are a bunch of Rothko's there. And she said, okay, have you seen a Rothko in person? I said, I have not. And she said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just walk up to a Rothko and stand in front of it and just ask yourself, is this stirring anything inside of you? And doggone it, Jonathan, it stirred something inside of me. And for the life of me, I can't tell you what it was. Um, There was a green rectangular shape and an orange one underneath it and kind of a brownish black. (laughs) And I I just was like, (laughs) I wanted to stay and linger over this thing. Um, and the same way with like Jackson Pollock, which is just kind of organized chaos and the paint splatter and all that, you know, um, and, uh, but that was like a helpful, you know, she was helping me. I I still can't tell you like why I was moved by looking at a Rothko, but Uh I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, you know, (laughs) and, uh, that's, that's part of the mystery and the power of art. Now, an art critic or art historian would probably be able to opine on that and say, well, I'll tell you exactly why you were moved by, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah right. I, I'm, but I, I've been, I don't think been, we have to, I don't ahead. think we have to know that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, or I think we can say, or that's information that I can accumulate over time. Yeah. Um, but I'm really glad I saw that Rothko and I'm really not much closer to understanding it than I was then. <laughs> And that's yeah. okay. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that reminds me of you know, something Flannery O'Connor said, and I can't put my, I, I can't find the exact quotation, but it's, I'm going to do the best I can here. But she says, essentially, the, the mind that's, that's most ready to be affected by fiction is, mm-hmm. is not necessarily the most educated mind, but, but the, the mind that's most willing to sort of enter into mystery and to, to, to that's open to the possibility that um, that mystery and th- that art somehow connects us to mystery. She was talking about fiction yeah. specifically, but but yeah, you know, as, as you said, the critic's job is to put it into words, mm-hmm. to to translate experience into into language. Yeah, but and I think I think I mean, one of the go ahead. Yeah, I, I feel like one of the uh, one of the mistakes that we make. Is that that is that the critic's work is is kind of the 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 pinnacle of the experience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is is yeah. that is that the person who then synthesizes it and puts it to language, analyzing it? That's the end of the road. Yeah, uh, that's what you want to be able to get to. And I, and yeah. I would say no, it's not. In fact, I was I was speaking to a group of of college students uh, just earlier this week, and I was talking about you know a story that I, I told them a story about um, Van Gogh's, the only painting he sold. And a student asked me, what's, wh- what would you say is the thesis of your story? Mm. Um, and it, we, this was a sidebar one-on-one um, afterwards. And I said, it's a story. <laughs> like, I don't have a thesis for that story. I'm telling, I'm telling you a story, yeah. but you know, that's one of the things that, that in the West, I think we, we think that the point of engaging with anything is to get the lesson from it is to get the application from it. And so, and so it's why we might walk up to a painting or read a poem 
and think and be frustrated because we don't feel like we got it. Um, you know, like it didn't, I, I, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, some of what you're supposed to do with it is let it roll around like marbles in a box in your head, you know, like, yeah. like it's, it, and, and it was Jesus primary method of teaching was, was not, let me tell you three things that you need to do. It was once there was a man who fell upon the, or uh, who fell among thieves, you yeah. know, or there was a woman who had a coin and she lost it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think, I think part of the beauty of art is, is it, it, it transcends just the idea that we're mere collectors of data and appliers of lessons, um, but yeah. that we're narratives, we're narrative mm-hmm. beings and we're, and we're people who, who, um, part of the way that we grow and develop as human beings is, is interacting with the stories and the experiences of others too. Um, Cause even though we may not say, I heard the story about this person and here's the three things I'm taking away from it and applying it to my life. Uh, the, the depth of the sorrow that a person experiences will soften us to um to grieve better, yeah. uh, or the, or, or the, um, the ambitions of somebody that then, that then kind of turn on them in the end will be a, a cautionary tale that might humble us in a conversation we're about to go into with somebody where we think we're right and they're wrong. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, the, the, the intangibility and the mystery of story and poetry and art and music, um, I think give us more than if we were just to say, and here's the three things that you should take away from that poem or, or the three life lessons you should get from this painting, you know? And it occurs to me that sometimes the, the, the criticism or a critical approach to art and beauty is one way to protect ourselves from that beauty (laughs) (laughs) and to insulate ourselves from it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, um, you make a point in the uh, maybe it's the introduction to your book um, that that beauty one thing beauty does is it, it can show us where we're wrong mm-hmm. and I, I love the example you've already mentioned Anton Ego so let's return to Anton Ego from Radio yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the the food critic there and I so love the way you talk about um, about Anton Ego. And the fact that he he comes in as a critic whose job is to judge the food, right? Yep. And then the beauty of the meal breaks through all that and and uh you know it, it yeah, it teleports him back. It, but. it teleports him back to being the happy child that he was before he became so serious. Yeah. You know, and he has he has a moment of 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 he experiences awe mm-hmm. and joy. And that's what beauty that's one of the ways beauty shows us where we're wrong is is it has this it's sneaky, mm-hmm. you know, it sneaks up on yeah. us. I mean, you and I have talked uh at length about our trips to the Grand Canyon, right? Yeah. We 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 both have taken family trips out west and and done the whole thing. And, you know, you, you meet people who will say, Grand Canyon, what's the big deal? It's just a big hole in the ground, <laughs> right? Yeah. When you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon, beauty shows you where you're wrong, if that's your opinion <laughs> of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, because while, yes, it's a big hole in the ground, there's also something 
um, about the way that the scope and the breadth of what you're seeing makes you small yeah. uh, and, and also makes you wonder at the, at the, um, the complexity of what caused something like this and the, yeah. and the power of what must have caused something like this and the time and, and all of those things. And, and that's part of what beauty does. It, it kind of exposes um, error when we form impressions without knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, without firsthand experience, we may decide that we just don't like people, a certain group of people or a certain foreign country, you know, or something like that. I, I don't yeah. ever want to go to that country, yeah. but then you go there and it, the beauty of a place and the beauty of people and the beauty of flavors and culture will, um, will, gently rebuke you, you know, yeah. in a way that also then draws you deeper into something, something good. Um, and I, I, you know, I think what, what it does, what beauty does is it brings specificity to prejudice. Yeah. 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 You know, so I have That's a so general good. prejudice against something and encountering the beauty of that thing shows you where your prejudice was just misinformed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm put you on the spot. Can you? Is there an example of when that's happened to you in your life? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's many. I think the, the Grand Canyon would be one. But let me think of, let me think of some others. Um, the Mark Rothko experience would be another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I do. I mean, you. Uh, you, you yeah, I mean, in yes, I, I would say just kind of in general, um, as a as a young person who who was of sort of an analytical frame of mind, um, and and probably not as analytical as I thought. <laughs> you know, I, I had um, uh, you know uh, just all kinds of opinions about, about, as you said, mm -hmm. people and groups of people and stories about, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I grew up in Georgia. So I thought I was a little suspicious of, of New York city, for instance, you know, or, yeah. or, or other, other Northern, yeah, right. Other yeah. Northern places. And, yeah. um, and to actually, uh, you know, go to a place and see the people who are, turns out they love their children too, even in New York city. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and you, you put it in terms of specificity when you see specific people, I mean, you know, you, you've got a, you've got a category of, of, uh, I don't know. I mean, if you're suspicious of, of Middle Easterners, if you actually know some Middle Easterners, it's hard to, it's those generalities yeah. don't last very well. Elaine, Elaine Scarry wrote, wrote a book called um, On Beauty and Being Just, and she says it like this. She said, beauty always takes place in the particular, and if there are no particulars, the chances of seeing it go down. And yeah. that's what prejudice is. That's, yeah. that's, there's a lack of particulars. Um, yeah. And so the beauty comes in and starts to show you the particulars. I did think of an example um, uh, that's very poignant for me. So I'm a pastor. My main job is I'm a, 
I'm a pastor of a local church, uh, and I have found over the course of my life for the local church to be one of these kinds of places that when I was younger, I thought, you know, maybe I'll go to church, maybe I won't, it'll be me and Jesus, and I'll read my Bible, but, uh, you know, and as a pastor, as somebody who's been with the church, one of the things that I know to be true about the church is that it's a place where the Lord picks your friends for you. Yeah. Um, you know, where people walk through the door and they're part of your community if they stick around. Mm-hmm. And if they stick around and they're part of the community, I look around and I think, I don't know any other organization or any other kind of setting in which I would have ever been friends with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, we're nothing alike. We, yeah. we, you know, there, there are things about them that I find odd. There are things about me I'm sure they find odd. Mm-hmm. And yet I spend more time with them in person than I do with my own mother, uh, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I see them every week. And, and uh, that's been one of those places where I, I think that um, uh, the church when the church is turned into a cartoon or the church is known for uh, the worst of what um, Christian people or people in positions of power within the church have done, which are all tragic and horrible. Um, but if the church gets reduced down to, to, uh, to just that, um, there's so much that is, that will be missed in the, in the beauty of the, local body of Christ and all of its idiosyncrasies and all of its strangeness. There's also so much good and so much depth of community and so much willingness to humbly walk uh, through life with one another that, that there's, there's just no other place in the world where it happens quite like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's a good example for me of where the beauty of the uh, the diversity and the breadth of the body of Christ will will show you where you're wrong if you think yeah. the churches are just full of one particular kind of hypocrite. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's good. You you speak of a theological responsibility to engage with beauty. Yeah. What do you <clears throat> tell me about that? Well, like, why is this a responsibility to to engage in beauty and not just a a bonus? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because what are the things that we know to be true about God, right? If our, if we, if we're in a pursuit of, if theology is a pursuit of knowing ourselves and knowing God, um, knowing ourselves in light of who God is, what are some of the things that we know about him? Um, a lot of what we know about him is, has to do with his glory and has to do with his handiwork, right? And so we, we, we read passages of scripture where, God shows up in some sort of visual form in a in a burning bush or you know uh in in the transfiguration or you know um you know and and in any in every case um there's a radiance that's too much to behold mm-hmm. uh and there's a a power and a and a and a majesty that is overwhelming to the people who are experiencing that. Um, it's glory, right? Mm-hmm. And then we we just look at the world that he has made, and it is filled with beauty, and it's filled with with um, God could have made things work any number of ways, right? But he but he made things, he made a setting sun, a beautiful thing. He made flowers. Uh, he made, you know, there are so many things that he created that are beautiful that maybe didn't have to be, but they are. 
Um, and that's a reflection of him. And I think if if we're trying to understand who God is and who we are in light of who he is, and dealing with matters of beauty and majesty are not part of that process, we're going to get a very two-dimensional um, view of God that's going to be prob- probably primarily concerned with our behavior mm-hmm. uh, and um, but not necessarily somebody that we would want to fall down in front of and worship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody we would we would say, I'm going to worship because he told me I have to. Um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but but, you know, there's so much, you know, I mean, Rich Mullins said it, you know, so much beauty around us for just two eyes to see. And everywhere I go, I'm looking. Uh, that's part of the theological responsibility of somebody who believes in a, in a majestic God who created the beauty of the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, that it is a right, that it is, it is, a, is an exercise in coming to know God better to stand on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and see it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's why I think it's a it's not just a a bonus, but it's we're doing it wrong if 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 beauty isn't part of a fundamental understanding of who he is. Yeah, to live in a world that was made for joy and not yeah feel joy is to yeah. I mean, it's 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 Genesis one, right? Like like the Lord makes the heavens and the earth. He makes the plants. He makes the animals. And what does he say after all of it? It was good. Yeah, it was good, you know, and I just think, okay, um, what must the hyper, you know, like, what must it mean for God to say something is good? Um, like, how good must it have to be? Yeah, right. right? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, as, as parents, we we look at a drawing that our kid, you know, that a seven-year-old makes, and we tell him, that's great, you yeah. know, Um it's great for a seven-year-old, and it's also a great opportunity to fill their tank a little bit with encouragement. But it's probably not going to be in the Louvre, you know. Um, yeah. You know how much wider must the chasm be um, yeah. between us telling a seven-year-old that their drawing is good and God looking at the world that He made and saying that's good? Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, yeah. It's. I mean, that's. <laughs> you you talk about the idea, and I think it's so important that beauty attracts. Yes. Right. And so, you know, truth, goodness, beauty, um, you know, the, the three transcendentals, um, you know, without putting down truth or goodness, both of which are exceedingly important. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But it, it seems to me that truth and goodness, those are things that we pursue and beauty pursues us. And beauty, you know, even if I'm resistant, and 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 there are plenty of times when I'm resistant to truth and beauty, uh, truth and goodness. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm also resistant to beauty. And beauty, I think you've used the word in this conversation already, sneaks up on you, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Sometimes you just don't, you know, a, a a person that is that is resistant to the truth can still get snuck up on by, by beauty. I'm not saying that the truth can't sneak, sneak up on you too, because it can and goodness yeah. can sneak up on you. No, I mean, we've, we all had the experience of beauty doing that. It's the double take, right? It's the, I have to see that. I have to see that again. I remember the first time I saw my wife, uh, I had to do a double take. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was her, it was her beauty. It, mm-hmm. it struck me. And what is that? What does that led to? It led to um, a longer process than I would have wanted uh, in getting her to go on a date with me. Um, but, but now we're, you know, we're, we're 28 years in, 
um, 27 of those as husband and wife. We've, we've, uh, or however many now, it, you know, we have five children and mm-hmm. vocations that we've fallen together. And, and, but it, my story is, is as old as time. It's like other, yeah. other people's story that, that we, that, that beauty attracts us, but then we, but then it's an invitation to step into something more deeply uh, and to, and to venture into something. Um, and so, and we do it. I mean, you know, we, we human beings, we use our vacation days and we, we drive to certain places just so yeah. we can see a sunrise, you know, yeah. and, and there's something about that experience that, it, I mean, that that's, that's us basically doing the same thing as Moses and David hungering in some very real way to see the glory of God. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, and it's drawing us in to put us in a place where we're, where our defenses are down and our posture is receptive. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, and hopefully with, with the book, not to circle back to the book, but that's part of what my, my goal was for the book was to tell beautiful stories. Mm-hmm. And by beautiful, I don't mean all happy. Like mm-hmm. there's some of the stories in the book, there's no hagiography here. Like <laughs> if I'm going to tell you about a, a painter whose life was a hot mess and were probably insufferable people, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's what you're going to read about. You know, there's some yeah. chapters in there where the, you know, I mean, gosh, the, the chapter on Caravaggio. <laughs> Just thinking about Caravaggio. Caravaggio. Like, you said a lot of what people. we know about his life is from police reports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we that's most, mostly what we know. I mean, there was one great, great, uh, I mean, Caravaggio is the guy who gave us the incredulity of St. Thomas, that beautiful, poignant picture where Jesus is is putting Thomas's finger into the wound in his own side, you know, and it's, I mean, it's crazy, but but he was a guy who, who um, uh, a, a friend of his said Caravaggio only knew Carnival and Lent. Uh, wow. those were, those were the, no those were the old things. There was nothing in the middle, you know, and, uh, he was either painting alone, these transcendent, beautifully, biblically poignant paintings, or he was using the money that he got from those paintings to go on week or month long benders where he would stab and murder people. <laughs> um, and, and like no hyperbole there, that's yeah. what he would do. And, and he's a, he's a riddle, you know, yeah. but that story is a, uh, I mean, there's, there's beauty in that story mm-hmm. because it's, it's a, it's a uh, kind of an extreme example of the, uh, the thing that I think all of us experience. And that is inside of me, there are things that are, there are things that are sacred and there are things that are profane and there's carnival and Lent both happening inside all of us at any given moment. And we are these paradoxes of, of, um, sanctity and debauchery, you know, and, and, and Caravaggio's life is just, you know, legacy is a, uh, a pretty extreme and tragically sad example of that. Uh, and it, yeah. that was a fascinating thing. You know how that chapter came about? Tell me. Is, uh, I loved the painting, The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Uh-huh. And I was like, I want to, I want to write a chapter about that painting. Okay. And so that was the start. And so wow. I started reading about the painting and then I started learning about Caravaggio. And then the more I was like, Oh, this can't be a story about that painting. That painting is a, is a, uh, is a footnote in the story behind how the painting, why the painting is so poignant, you know? And so, yeah. yeah. but it's just those little sparks of, of, 
wanting to kind of follow the thread of a story that as, as anybody is engaging, reading the plaque on the wall beside a piece of art and you see something that intrigues you, mm-hmm. make a note of it and then Google it later. Um, <laughs> and uh, just you'll be amazed at the rabbit trails you will find yourself going down and the things that you will uncover um, that, uh, that are just kind of mesmerizing and fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I didn't, uh, I didn't know. I mean, this book is an invitation. This is, this is an attractive book. It attracts me to something I didn't, I didn't know I was interested in Caravaggio. I didn't know, uh, you know, I was interested in, in art. I mean, I mean, I have, I've known because I've been hearing your talks for these last few years. Um, but you have opened up a world to me, um, in these, in these chapters. And, um, and so, uh, you say, you know, you talk about these stories being beautiful. They really are beautiful. You've, you've done a, you, you've, you've written something beautiful here. And I'm really proud of you. I'm proud to know you. Thanks, so, man. And I'm, so and I'm really glad that's been your response because that's, that's what my hope is for this particular yeah. book is that it is an invitation for people to say, um, man, that, that was, you know, I, the, the second chapter is on Michelangelo's David mm-hmm. and great chapter. It, it is a, uh, that story is just such a, I'm not boasting in what I wrote, but the story mm-hmm. of Michelangelo's David is, is like a heartbreakingly beautiful and complex yeah, thing. It is. Um, and uh, so that was, that was the hope. Uh, and so I'm really, I'm really glad that, that that has been your response is that it's, it's been an invitation to, to go yeah. deeper in. I think, well, you know, as, I think as much as I things- love books that are about things I, I already love when I really, yeah. I just love books that, that, make me love something I didn't know I was going yeah. to. And that's, that's I think what that this does. When we engage with art, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in my um, chapter on uh, Van Gogh's Red Vineyard mm-hmm. uh, is that when you walk up to a painting that you've never seen before, that painting belongs to the world. But if it's a painting that you connect with on some level, um, by the time you walk away from it, it's become part of your personal collection. <laughs> and we all have this, right? We all have sort of personal collections of music and literature, but we also do this with art. And one of the things that I think I can promise with this book is I'll add at least nine works to your personal collection, mm-hmm. um, things that you will feel belong to you in a very real way, you know, um, uh, things that you'll say, I I know something about that, yeah. you know, or it'll there'll be a, a, an air of familiarity when you see it, where you'll you'll feel like, like when you go to a party and you're not sure, you, you don't know anybody there, and you see somebody across the room. I've been to parties at your house, Jonathan, where it's been that way. Where I've gotten there and I'm looking for like, I don't know most of the people here. Yeah. Oh, there's somebody I know. That's where I'm going. You know, I'm yeah. going to go right over there now. Um, but also, yeah. the first time you came to the Christmas party at my house, you hid in the bathroom for a long time. Panic room. Bathrooms <laughs> are great, great panic. I mean, it's a pro tip for introverts, right? Is that, yeah. you know, a bathroom is a good place to just kind of go into, lock the door and just kind of stand there for a minute. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. I was completely healthy that day. I was just, <laughs> you know getting what I needed for the introvert who was redlining. <laughs> well, um, Russ Ramsey, thanks so much for, for being here. And, and um, I hope a lot of people read this book because it sure did me a lot of good. Man, thank you so much. It's good to talk to you. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room 
where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.